please welcome a customer from you know one of our favorite territories. We love Canada. We love Canadian customers. We love our office and our people there. I would venture to say that Daisy Intelligence was one of our first big customers in Canada. It's a great pleasure to have Gary Serenveta here today, founder and CEO of Daisy Intelligence. Welcome to Cloud and Clear. Great. Thanks very much, Tony. Look forward to chatting with you. Likewise. No, legitimately, this is one of the first uh, meaningful relationships we had up there. When we became your partner, I think literally we might have had two people, uh, maybe three in all of Canada, and now we're like 45 or so. It turns out that it's not only a great local market, but it's a great pool of talent to serve all of North America. So we have very heavy investments in engineering and in other functions, and we're, we're super excited. So thanks for being on. I don't get to talk to too many of my Canadian customers like this. So thanks for being on Cloud and Clear. Oh, happy to be here and excited to be part of this and uh, share our story and, and have a nice chat today. You're you know 18-year founder, CEO, pretty rare these days. And it seems like based on what we're talking about, you're still very active, hands-on, meeting customers, all the stuff that I think builders like you and I love to do. But tell us about even before Daisy Intelligence, how did you get into the space and what got you to launch the company, how the company's evolved? Because you've been in the game for a long time. I have a technical background. I have a master's degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Toronto, which is a great school, which is a little why there's a lot of great tech talent here, one of, one of the reasons. But yeah, and then so big background in math and science and not much of an aerospace industry in Canada. And I wasn't ready to leave Canada at the, at the time. And so I kind of backed into working with large corporations. And I was really shocked at how little math and science big companies use to make operating decisions. <laughs> and so I created this accidental career of bringing more math and science to business, always with a bent to, to deliver financial results and outcomes. And so after grad school, I worked with a company called Loyalty One that runs the Air Miles Reward Program, a large coalition loyalty program. And they have a lot of retail customers and grocers and they got exposed to retail data. and became one of the first worldwide users of IBM's technology. Data mining was a buzzword back in the 90s for AI. I think the terminology's changed more than the technology has. I really got into playing with huge volumes of data using machine learning technology back in that day. Then I ran IBM Canada's data mining practice and, and their data warehousing practice and was one of their global go-to people for high-end analytics work. And uh, along the way, I realized that machine learning in its current form, what everyone thinks about today, doesn't quite work for complex problems. And I, I think the world is living through the experience that I lived through 25 years ago just by accident. And I was super excited. Predictive analytics can solve everything when I realized that it's not quite enough. And so we, I thought that IBM's a great business, a great company. I'd say they're good at everything, masters of nothing maybe, if, if that was a, not too unfair of a commentary. And I thought I could take my analytics skills and my math skills. And my goal was to help companies operate smarter. And I thought this AI should be autonomous. That's a key defining feature. And so we've built some autonomous technology. What do you mean by autonomous? Let's educate the listeners here. Yeah, autonomous means a, a system that works with no human in the loop, does thinking for itself, makes decisions, it can be a very narrow scope. Our Technology doesn't make you a cup of tea, but it can solve its specific problem. I would say like the Ingenuity helicopter that just flew, it flew by itself. It's got a set of software and logic and there's no human in the loop. And I think I brought some of my aerospace thinking when I predictive modeling or supervised learning doesn't 
really do the problem on its own. I went back to look what aerospace has been doing for 50 years, which is military fighter jets have an element of fly-by-wire that the pilot doesn't actually fly the plane. And certainly NASA rovers that are out there uh, are autonomous systems, right? And so the idea of taking autonomous logic with the science first, all those systems have the laws of physics in it. And it's not a data-learned laws. It's like the theory, human-led theory. And so I took we took that approach and we created kind of theories of business first and then get the data second. And I think that's been a, a unique a kind of differentiator in our, in our approach. And as far as I know, we're one of the very few, if not the only one outside of the engineering and science domains that's taken that kind of scientific method and part of the business. Our, our vision is the autonomous enterprise. We believe in a future where computing machines improve our lives. And that means making companies more profitable. That means it'll lower the cost of living for you and me because if we make smart companies reinvest in price and innovation, which ultimately impacts their, their consumer, and then ultimately we want to make human pe- beings' jobs easier. I read a survey that said the fifth most important reason you take a job is because you love the job. That's pretty sad. It should be the number one reason. So if we can take away some of the drudgery, let computers do the gory details and computing and repetitive high-volume activity and let people do what people are good at. And there's a place for both. I don't advocate replacing humanity but that's our vision totally i think the human factor uh will always be there in terms of the creative arts things like of that nature that i think humans uh, excel at at least for now singularity may, may change that sometime in the future but I, I agree with you so much of business process and and decision making with all this tool sets being available, I think more in a more democratized fashion than ever before, more affordable than ever before, it's still like just very early stages of how much of decision-making gets automated. So Daisy Intelligence was formed, it seems then out of your IBM experience, but also maybe the limitations you felt of what you could do there. Yeah, and I thought I could do it better, faster. I founded the company. I thought fraud detection was the killer app. I thought who was committing fraud against large corporations? It's, it wasn't just the individuals. It was like, I think, organized activity, organized crime and terrorism. And I thought we can help lower the cost of insurance, but we could also stem the funding for some of these nefarious activities. And I thought that fraud was the killer app. And we started building like a fraud detection solution. So autonomously identifying insurance fraud and then quickly go to bank fraud. And the world doesn't move as quickly as you want to. And so we're still, I think, in the early 2000s when we were doing this, we did a lot of pilots and work with big insurance companies, but they weren't ready to take it and really deploy it. So I think we've been ahead of the curve all along the way. And that's a challenge when you're trying to grow a business to be disruptive and different. So around 2008, nine, the big financial crisis and the kind of interest in fraud ended for a while there. And then we picked up in retail, doing a lot of work in retail around merchandise planning. So helping retailers decide what to promote, what prices to charge, how much inventory to allocate. And again, our systems deliver the answer. Even on the insurance side, it's there's no human required. There's no data scientist on the client side. We could just plug into the back end system and say, pay this claim, don't pay this claim, or you should charge this price, put 100 units of Coke in that store, put some in the distribution center. It's that kind of vision of autonomous. But that doesn't mean you replace a person still because a human's still the boss. Human sets the strategy and the objectives. The AI takes care of the details, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that pivot that you described, probably one of many. I think anybody's been around in tech services or software for 20 years or so has probably pivoted a bunch of times. 
in, in at least the successful ones, right? Like you have to read the market, you have to read the tea leaves. Your customers often take you in certain directions if you're receptive and, and paying attention. So that's one sort of big pivot you described. What are some of the other memorable pivots going from fraud detection to retail? But other pivots, whether they were strategic or geographical, what sticks out in the, in the story of Daisy Intelligence? Yeah, I think we started out doing professional services. And so I had the IBM had this great mentality of they call it first of a kind development. So when you do development, you need to develop with a customer. The company is not going to fund product development unless there's a customer in the mix. And so I thought, okay, we're going to do professional services with a view to build some software. And so we did that with customers. We worked with a few customers at a time and the guy kind of self-funded the development of the technology. So that time we had no outside funding. It was just so I think we ran about 30 million in revenue through the the business over a decade and we took all the 100% of the profits of that and I poured it into software development and so then the big pivot was when we started to get investors is like okay, throw away I'll do work for anybody for anything that's in our domain of capability and then say okay I'm going to focus on this product and I'm going to just do that I'm going to say no to all these requests for services and that was a massive pivot and I'd isn't say it kind hard? of isn't that pivot really hard just saying no to anything that you used to do and now don't want to do such a as brutal as an entrepreneur I still struggle with that which is yeah I can do oh, I can do that we, we can do that oh, yeah. we can do that that's, we can you know, that's it's like the, that's the other pressure is like this FOMO about crypto and other automation like it's all this stuff we have this role as leaders to have our finger on the pulse of what's going on and so we don't miss the transformational relevant things but you have to really deliberately try to ignore everything else it's really absolutely hard. yeah it's very difficult now, so that was a big pivot going professional services and going from non-recurring 100% non-recurring revenue to 100% recurring revenue and we did that in 2015-16 I felt our technology was ready for prime time we had built it with customers over a decade we had tested it proved that it worked and so not being savvy in the investment game I think I kind of de-risked some technology and undervalued what that was worth initially and we were treated like a brand new startup even though I had written like tens of millions of lines of code that we had spent 10 million dollars of company profits uh, building and so that was just not knowing and you know my family didn't come from big business my dad was an auto mechanic and uh, owned his own business and my mother was a hairdresser and owned her own business yeah they were business people but they weren't in from this kind of savvy investment world so what happened after that you raised capital yeah, we raised capital and then we really started to focus on growth and we went from one customer to 15 customers over the last or last five years. We tripled, tripled, doubled in revenue. Then the pandemic happened. We've raised like $20 million and we did some seed capital rounds like $5 million and then raised like $15 million in a kind of an A and a Series A extension. And uh, we've grown we, from customers in Canada to kind of 50% of our businesses in the U.S. retail, focused on grocery, high-frequency retail, grocery, drugstore, hyper markets and we got a one uh, a grocery customer in Europe and uh, insurance customers in Canada some international brands some multinational brands and channel partners now in about seven geographies from the Middle East to Europe to Latin America Mexico Brazil US so we're selling all over the all around uh, thinking because we're an enterprise software solution if I'm looking how many grocers can I sell to in North America okay there's there's a big market there probably a hundred probably would meet our clip and 
and then uh, so if I want to get to 50 customers I'm not going to get 50% of the North American market I, that, so I need to go okay there's 10 in UK there's 10 in France there's 5 in Spain and so it's okay I'm going to go get one or two customers in all these geographies that, that was a thought and certainly still focus on the US as the biggest market and we spend a lot of time there but so we've been growing trying to grow internationally and I think we're right now struggling with this the fact that we're so disruptive that that's the tough part of the sell so getting the product market fit I think we rode the AI shiny bobble wave you know, everyone was excited about three or four years ago about AI and so we got a lot of growth from that but now it's we're running into the face of okay this retailer has 500 people who do the job that our software could do and that resistance and change and so forth right now yeah so how do you so how do you you know sell a disruptive technology that that's the that's what we're trying to figure out it's hard to sell to those people who you may be altering their job description it, it's hard to do that definitely look and there's going to be some new jobs created by virtue of what your software does but probably not 500 of them at the same time i think there's sub, uh, sufficient pressure especially in retail to completely reinvent, completely have a better understanding of the customer experience, customers' needs. Distribution models are being challenged online versus delivery, home delivery, retail, curbside. So I think in some ways, I think it sounds like your software has a bigger role to play in a retailer's desired operation than ever before because they actually have to transform now. Isn't that that, don't you also feel that demand? I feel that demand totally. I, I think I wouldn't wish the pandemic would have happened, but I think it's accelerated a lot of technology change, brought it forward a decade. And so I see automation as a huge requirement in retail. The retailers are overwhelmed with their e-commerce channels, which if you've been an omni-channel, now that's all of a sudden grown maybe by an order of magnitude or close to that. And you have to deal with that and your regular business. And on the insurance side, consumers want to be reimbursed in real time and insurance has been digitizing already for a decade and I think this is just accelerating it and as we get consumers are more and more savvy and we love our smartphone apps and how slick and easy they are we want everything in our lives to be like that and so I think there's pressure in all industries and so if we see that opportunity for sure and it's just we're still a relatively small company 50 people here 15 customers so it's we have this story to tell and it's how do you get out there and we're in that this cusp of disruption that's happening and we're not the only company that's running into this kind of disruptive change requirement where you people step sideways don't don't leave the building but they step aside and, and, and let machines come in and, and and take over some of the tasks and I think that's that challenge is being faced in in many industries and many different types of technologies and I think once once we humanity that out and we're comfortable with that and realize that the machines aren't taken over they're not destroying us it's good i think then a lot of us will really ride forward and hopefully we're trying to help make that happen the efficiency potential is still great in many industries a good friend of ours came from the google system you know launched upstart many years ago and because they thought the way credit rating worked was highly inefficient and inaccurate and the insurance industry, there's all these new insurance, insurance tech, as you would, disruptors coming up, some being acquired by the traditionals, but like the way, in, you know, premiums were set was maybe not very smart, it could be optimized. So I think all these traditional distribution modeling challenges, I think are still very ripe for disruption. And it feels, again, I agree with you, we've seen the same thing in terms of our company trajectory is don't wish the pandemic on anybody. But if there was ever a compelling event that would accelerate traditional conservative organizations in their digital journey who thought they had five to 10 years to do this, they no longer do. And 
we think that there's a lot of positive sort of GDP impact potential, EBITDA impact potential, the Fortune 2000, if, if some of these things are implemented better. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen in our customers, on average in retail, we've seen a 3 to 5% total company sales lift. You know, so if you're in a 1% net margin industry, we, were, we could double net profit. Now, getting the people to buy into that, that's the hardest thing. But I see that in every single retailer we've gone to, from our smallest clients on the order of $100 million in revenue and our largest clients, $30 billion in revenue. We've seen the same types of metrics everywhere. Now, I'm not going to have my customer come to me and say, hey, Gary, you'd make us a billion dollars. I'm not going to hear those words, but we know we've contributed through continual contract renewals that there's value there. Even in our space where we're generally providing like the infrastructure and the plumbing and the services around that, like we, I'm sure you're getting pressed to deliver exactly the kind of data that warrants a renewed agreement just like we are. And I think that makes sense. It's the maybe you had a few years where people are doing AI because AI was cool. But now it's actually show me the hot the lift to demonstrate the the savings or the increase in revenue. And for those not familiar with retail, one to three percent is a crazy lift. <laughs> like it is a remarkable amount of lift. Yeah, when your net margin is 1% or close to zero, you're flat. We, we can double the net income of a retailer. And similarly on the insurance side, it's I think that you know, you know, there's 10 to 25% fraud, waste, and abuse in typical insurance businesses. And, and so we've been able to identify millions of dollars of fraud savings. And the barrier there is there's an uh, insurance company has a human being has to look at every complex claim or fraud case to adjudicate it or decide if it's fraud. So human beings on their bottleneck, there's not enough of them. So most claims just get paid. And so that affects yeah, the cost of insurance it. for you and me than to adjudicate it. You're right. Exactly. And, and so, you know, yeah, you're getting a $500 windshield claim. Are you going to spend time on that? But at the end of the day, if you look at, you know, the, what, the, what's been the largest factor driving the cost of insurance in the last 25 years, it's fraud. There used to be something like, I think 5% of whiplash injuries were like a grade five injury, which is the worst, most severe. 80% were like grade one or two. I think now it's 80% are grade five. It's because people have realized uh, that this is an easy system to game. That's why I started the company. I thought that fraud thing was such a home run, but it's just a willingness to go chase that. It's that's again, it's a tough change. You know, you're tough if you're the CEO of an insurance company to admit that it's happening on your watch and that's a tough change. I think there's going to be enough pressure in terms of digitization automation that even the most, I think, conservative and resistant leaders have to go down that path because they're boards and investors are going to push them to do that because we want to pay the we want to pay the legitimate claims quickly because CSAT is critical, right? And we definitely don't want to pass on the cost of huge degrees of fraud onto our great customers. And we want their premiums to be low and competitive. And But in retail, I think more than any other industry they've seen, obviously there's been travel hospitality has been hit really hard. And maybe there's things they couldn't control in the process. For sure, there's just nothing you can do and literally you're locked down. But retail has transformed the most for those who had the foresight and the ability to execute. And by the way, over the last year and a half, like we're in the business of delivering these types of solutions to customers. We're in the business of selling technology like video conferencing technology with workspace and other things, communication collaboration tools. We were just actually, and I'm sure you're in the same boat of like, holy cow, what if this pandemic hit 10 years ago? 
If we thought the economic impact was tough now, imagine if you couldn't order stuff or get stuff delivered or collaborate or video conference or a lot more parts of the economy. You look at it, so what's the value of automation and, and building more stable business? Say, well, I, I get it done today with my people, but then the pandemic hits and yeah, I, I totally agree with your point. You know, sometimes technology is overlooked and some industries more than others are a little bit more resistant to investing. Here, and you Here's know. a challenge because human memory timeframes are like so short. Here's a challenge for you and I as leaders and the community of people who provide these services and technologies like to make sure that once things get better and open up, people don't naturally default to all the old habits and the ways of thinking. Because I think more than anything, what 2020, uh, 2020 showed us is that we must be prepared for everything, every possibility, every outcome, every uh, disaster. This is not going to be the last pandemic. So I think we're trying to encourage our customers to hey, the muscle memory you're developing now, don't go back. Like curbside pickup will probably now always be an option and it should be, right? Don't go back to be like, we're done with curbside. Everything's in store now. I think that's what we're trying to encourage in our customer base. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's been a lot of a lot of great services and e-commerce has risen like crazy. We're not going to stop yet. It's not, consumers don't want to stop that. And the businesses should continue to support that. It's all about servicing your customers. And ultimately, our technology helps our clients service their customers. It's, if I elevate your employee to free up their time, they're going to spend time servicing their customers, delivering on their mission giving value to shareholders. So when our software enables a three to 5% sales growth, it's not our software. It's that we freed up our clients' employees. They delivered the three to 5%. We just supported them to do that. Technology's an enabler, right? It's a support vehicle, but the people who live there, they're the ones who get it done. Let's pivot a little bit about the technology itself. Cause again, you weren't born in the cloud. There's no cloud. 20 years ago and probably 10 years ago that was not like as mainstream as even though amazon had a huge head start and the stuff that they had tell me about your tech stack journey maybe how it was when you were just doing services how it evolved when you were becoming a SaaS solution. That's really an, an interesting story. I want the audience to hear as well. Some funny statistics. When I worked at Air Miles, like the loyalty program, 170 retailers in Canada. So 80% of the population of Canada were collecting their transaction data. So it wasn't the detailed T log detail, but it was all their like one record per transaction. We had a, a refrigerator size server, IBM P series. It wasn't called a P series back then. It was, I forget what it was, an AIX server. And it had four. 40 gigabytes of disk space. And we thought, wow, that was, so that was when I started my career. And so I, and we've evolved into parallel computing. And so we were doing just machine learning, parallel computing on hundreds of gigabytes of data at the time. And that became terabytes quickly when we got into grocery. And so I took my experience working with parallel DB2 and parallel hardware. And so we had our own equipment when we did professional services, it was always taking the client's detailed transactions. And so our tech stack was built on parallel computing computing, uh, DB2, then we got into some open source because when you're getting into oh, like five, 10 terabytes of data, the DB2 licenses were a little too expensive for a small company. So uh, we moved from there to start to look at kind of Hadoop and, and these open source kind of databases. And so we moved to Hadoop, even though running DB2 and Hadoop on the same query, the same hardware, DB2's got way more investment dollars, but at the end of the day, it was free and we were, we worked to 
overcome the, some of the challenges, but when we built a lot of capability there and, and then eventually, and we managed our own GPUs. So we did MPI parallelism first using multi-core processors and doing parallelism on that. And then GPU came out and we started playing with NVIDIA GPUs and putting our software and parallelizing that. In one, one hour, one of our smart young guys, graduates of the University of Toronto Engineering Science Program, where I went to that program and I, we hire a lot of people from NSI. And I said, okay, here's the book on GPU. Here's my crappy code that I wrote that parallelized it on MPI. And I think it's really easy to do this. Four hours later, the code's running 100 times faster because it went from running on four 10-core processors to running on a GPU of 3,000 processors. Then we said, okay, how do I scale from here? I'm getting more and more customers. I now have 100 terabytes of data. We're, we're managing our own off-lease hardware servers, break fix, popping in drives. And so I'm starting <laughs> to build all this core competency in hardware management. And we're trying to write parallel computing software. And I'm going, okay, this is not making too much sense anymore. So I thought we should look at this thing called the cloud. It was that pivot. It was that pain of managing our own infrastructure and how long it took to deploy another server when we got another customer. And, and then we said, it doesn't make any sense what to be building that? core. That was really like, couple years ago like oh, we wow, were doing okay. this until like when we yeah, started yeah. to really move to the cloud we started exploring we started playing with azure like maybe three years ago and then a couple years ago did decided let's go to the cloud and we you know and explored azure versus google those are the two choices being in retail aws was a bit of persona non grata for yeah, our retail yeah, customers so for all of our other retail SaaS customers there's just no go no go on aws yeah and then we got an RFP and a bake-off and kind of moved to Google, right, a year ago with your guys' help. Now, it's taken about 11 months to migrate. Uh, we're migrating our last customer, so we expect to be done the end of next month. And then really focusing on becoming cloud-native. I'd say we forklift upgraded our infrastructure in step one and step two is to get cloud-native. And uh, my goal that I challenge my technical team is I want to run my parallel software that we all develop together. I want to run that on a million cores. Can we can do that? Can I want to run that test and I want to real time optimize for my clients because you know when retailers when we deliver here's the products you should promote this week and my client says what if I swap that one product out what happens? I want to push the button and give them an answer. I want to spin up a million cores and give them the answer and charge them 20 bucks for that enter key that's where we want to when get it costs to right you like 50 cents and you want to charge 20 bucks like that's yeah. the right model right yeah and that, that's where we want to get to and we want to take away the headache of infrastructure management which has been a barrier to our developers oh my god this hardware thing is broken we got to get someone to fix it and so it's been so a huge headache a but really exciting for replatforming journey ahead and I, is, is BigQuery part of that yeah, we see ourselves moving to BigQuery and, and, and Kubernetes. And the interesting thing, my son works for Google and he's our cloud engineer on our account. So it's fun. And I, we just had a QBR today just before this call with the SATA and Google team. And so watching my son present is a weird feeling. Wow, my, my son's got his shit together. He's like smart. And I'm, I'm also his customer. So I'm, it's a really, I took a picture no, the, of the screen. The I took a he, picture of the screen. You must feel. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, that's my dad. He's judging me right now. And he's also no, my I took customer. A picture the screen and I texted it to my wife. I go, you know, check that right. Put yourself on the back a little bit. Like mission accomplished. Good dad vibes right there. What you're describing is, is the stuff that we really get excited about because 
The reason that we went all in with Google is that we saw the Google path as being innately more transformational than the other cloud options by virtue of being number three, by virtue of being very good and heavily invested in the serverless you know, ecosystem. We're seeing more Hadoop to BigQuery migrations than ever before. And I'm talking about massive scale because most of these Hadoop customers, like Twitter used to run on Hadoop. And so they moved to, by and large part, to the Google infrastructure uh, and platform services. We're doing many other projects like that, like huge companies, because they, they, they went through the same thing you went to. Like when the data set got so big, the licensing fees on any other commercial database made no sense. They had to go open source. But then literally at this DC-based customer, like we're testing query response times and Hadoop versus BigQuery. 80 times faster, 100 times faster. It's just unbelievable. But those are the kinds of things you can utilize to build new capabilities for which your customers will be happy to pay for, but also in general, allows your solution to keep up with customers' expectations of what they see in the consumer software world every day. Yeah. Yeah, we're excited about the, this, super excited to get on getting 100% cloud native and really taking advantage of these technologies, getting serverless, being 100% ephemeral. That's, that excites me and the capabilities that brings, the, the ability that, that we can scale to any workload. So excited and that helps us push our capabilities and deliver these new features to customers exactly as you pointed out. You just worry about the code and of course the UX, UI, all that beautiful stuff, but you're just not even worrying about the infrastructure. You can bring on as many customers as you need. They can get as big as they need to get. You can charge them whatever you need to charge. And also in your global ambitions, again, I think picking Google, points of presence and the network speed and latency in the Google cloud globally is literally unparalleled. There's also data location, data residency needs. They just opened up the Poland data center, but they, I think they're Montreal now, which has its different things in Quebec different states in the United States, all around Europe, Middle East, Asia, Africa, et cetera. And that's going to get really exciting because I think that's one of the reasons we picked GCP was just the global presence. And, and I think also you guys are a big part of the reason we picked them when we did the bake off. You guys really impressed in terms of the migration team, the technical talent you guys brought to the table was like, yeah, we want to work with these guys. And, I appreciate it. And, and the I combination like between better in the last two years as well. And I'm so honored that we were part of that first big leap of faith that you had to take from on-premise to a cloud. And we were part of that decision to help you choose Google Cloud. That's what we're really proud of because what makes me proud of what I do is we truly believe we're making an impact to customers and to decision makers who are choosing this path. And just like you, you're passionate about your work. It's really meaningful work. And I feel it's still very early stages of applied AI and retail and these other industries. Just so I feel like it's the early days of cloud. I mean, the Daisy Intelligence story is very common. Our number one vertical, and now we define it as a vertical where two years ago we might not have, is literally SaaS companies are like the number one customer for Google Cloud. And in a lot of ways, our biggest vertical at SADA. And I was on with Packet Fabric on the last episode. And I was like, the thing about Google is they don't want to be in your business. They want to provide the Lego pieces for you to build your business. And I think that is just a different sort of orientation towards partnership than some of the other cloud providers have. We're super excited that our team's excited uh, to, to use the modern technology and tools and learn and the young technical people want to learn and have a career path. And I think this is the right move for not only the business, it's for the people in the business as well. So it's exciting. It's fun, fun for them. And yeah, we're, I think we just see great upside continuing forward on this path. So 
Totally. We hope to uh, be your partner for many years to come. Uh, thank you for spending some time together here, Gary, and educating the market in US, Canada, worldwide on your career path, Daisy Intelligence story, your customers, and how Google Cloud has helped you transform the way you go to market. That's awesome. These are exactly the types of stories that people want to hear directly from founders like you. So I really appreciate you being my guest. I appreciate that. And thanks for helping us get to the cloud. We really appreciate the support your team's given us. It's been a, it's been a great year so far, and we look forward to many more. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.